I want to read to you a little passage from Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 20. It says, for, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, it, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Today, I have the task of engaging one of the hardest questions asked of Christianity. And that question is, why does God allow pain and suffering? Many of us struggle with this because of our own personal experiences of suffering. And to be honest with you, I don't like suffering. I don't sign up for suffering. When God has this sheet who wants to suffer, I don't run eagerly to the front of the line to suffer. I hate it. When one considers the extent and depth of suffering in the world, whether due to natural disasters, this is what philosophers or theologians call natural evil, or human depravity, what they call moral evil, one finds it hard to believe in the God of the Bible or a God at all. And as I've told you, I've wrestled with these particular issues, for I'm no stranger to the grim reality of suffering. As many of you already know, I, I watched my son Chase take his last breaths. I watched my wife struggle, fight to maintain her life as she bled out on a hospital bed. First year of marriage. I don't wish that on any of you. I had no one to turn to, no one to counsel me through it. I went through it alone. My brother, 6'3", 200 pounds, crushing linebacker, was diagnosed in his 20s with multiple sclerosis. And I have watched him waste away throughout the years, and he is as skinny as I am. Muscular, strong, MS, can barely walk. My father-in-law moves to Seattle, Washington, retires, moves out there, we don't hear from him for two years. He calls my wife. I have stage four cancer. Tell D I want him to officiate my funeral. 
I don't approach you today as an ivory tower theologian. Oh no. I approach you today as a real believer who has wept, who has cried, who has experienced suffering. This problem of pain and suffering is perhaps, or they say, it's the most cogent, forceful objection that atheists or unbelievers bring against Christian theism. And they see it as their greatest tool to dethrone the God of heaven. This is my first point this morning. Does pain and suffering disprove God? Does pain and suffering disprove God? Noted atheist J. L. Mackey in his book, The Miracle of Theism, argues in this fashion. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist and does not exist. Listen to the confidence. Some other God or God may exist, but not the traditional God. He does not exist. You see, tucked away in his premise is the assertion that if evil appears to be pointless to me, then it must be pointless. This is a brand of hardline skepticism that has come to the fact and has said, I know what truth is. Now, do you know everything? I don't. This man's sure of himself. And he says there can't be any God because I don't understand suffering. There is no God. Does pain, evil, and suffering disprove God? No. Evil, pain, and suffering is not an objection against the existence of God. Why is that? Well, because objective evil presupposes objective good. And objective good presupposes a standard outside of ourselves to be in existence. To say that there is such a thing as good and evil assumes that there is an objective moral law created by a lawgiver, God, by which we differentiate between what is good and what is evil. You see, the problem of evil is not just a problem for you, Christian. It's a problem for the atheists. They have to bring the burden of truth as well. Don't let them get out of it. You see, because when they question the problem of evil, when they ask you why does God allow pain and suffering, they are presupposing objective good. And see, when they're doing that, they're stealing from God. Why does it matter? 
C.S. Lewis in his journey to faith, rejected the reality of God because of the brutal nature of suffering that he observed. And then he realized after some observation that the problem of suffering and evil was more problematic for his atheism because he was presupposing objective good without a true standard. What's good, C.S. Lewis? What's evil if God doesn't exist? C.S. Lewis says this, my argument against God was that the universe seemed to be so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given my idea of just by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust. Not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple to me. Lewis came to understand this. On what basis does the atheist or unbeliever judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, and unjust? If you're an atheist, you have no reason or no right to question me about the problem of evil. You don't. You have no reason to be outraged at injustice because if I come to the conclusion that God does not exist because of pain, then we don't have a standard by which we can say something is evil and life has no concrete definition. This is exactly what Richard Dawkins believes. He says the universe, this is an atheist now, one of the four horsemen. They championed this guy. This guy's so brilliant. This is what he says now. If you're an atheist and you follow Richard Dawkins, this is what he believes. This is the hope that he gives you. The universe, as we have observed, has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. That's the hope Richard Dawkins offers you. If this is your position, let me ask you this. Why do you care about pain and suffering? Why? How do you even know what's good? You see, you have a problem with that too. What's good? If there's not a standard or concrete definition for good, what answer can you give me? What comfort could you provide me by way of justice and reconciliation? Because if this is true, there will be no justice. There will be no reconciliation. Joseph Mangala, monster of a man, a physician, in the Auschwitz death camp, was infatuated by twins, performed all types of experiments upon Jewish 
twins. A mother gave birth to guess what? Twins. One of the twins did not meet his criteria or standard, to which Mr. Mangala ripped the child from the mother's arms and threw the child into a burning furnace. For that child, for that mother, there is no justice if God does not exist. Without God, there will be no reconciliation. The things that you have lost, there will be no reconciliation. When I saw my son die, if God does not exist, I will not be reunited with him. Nothing matters. Blind, pitiless indifference. Okay, Demetrius, let's say that God does exist. Maybe he's just partially powerful. Or maybe we have to agree with the word of faith movement. Huh? That God is partially powerful and we as human beings, we have the power to give him a right in the earth realm to do what he wants through the speaking of words. Now that is absurd. If you are believing that man, this is my second point, then just how powerful is Okay, if he exists, how powerful is he? Maybe he's partially powerful. You see, the Bible attributes the traditional God of the Bible with absolute, unrivaled power. He is sovereign. And the scope of his sovereignty is massive. Number one, God is sovereign over inanimate matter. Psalm 33, 9, God governs irrational creatures. Exodus 8, 13 through 22, God governs the realm of, within the realm of men. Acts 17, 26 through 28, God determines their dwellings. God thwarts their sinful desires and intentions. Genesis 20, verse 6. He makes the wrath of man praise him. Psalm 76.10, the New Living Translation says, human defiance only enhances your glory, for you use it as a weapon. This is clearly seen in the life of Joseph. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50, verse 20. And in its greatest sense, it is seen at the cross that God rules in the realm of men. Acts 2, 22 through 23. Evil men delivered Jesus to a bloody, humiliating death, thinking they were thwarting the mission of a charlatan. God used their wrath. God subdued their sin as a ringleader does a lion in a circus, causing it to bow down to his good pleasure and predetermined plan to redeem you. 
I said this at the summer dinner series, I'm gonna say it again. You know God still uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines? He's that good. God governs angels, good and bad. Daniel 4.35, Daniel 10.13, God releases his angels to do his will. He binds evil angels, Satan, and his demonic emissaries from doing what they want and giving full vent to their evil intentions. Genesis 20, one through two. God governs the salvation of men. He saves you by his sovereign arm and by sheer grace. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. God governs the nations. Psalm 22, 20, 28 says that he is the king of the nations. He frustrates their plans. Psalm 33, verse 10. And if we're left, if, if we've left something out, God's word says that he works all things out according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 111, Psalm 103, 19. You see, in God's universe, there are no maverick molecules, autonomous atoms, sovereigns, or sovereign Satans. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, we, we mentally assent to this. When the birds are chirping and the bees are buzzing, God's sovereignty, Christian, is okay for you. But when it spills over into your life, that's when we have a problem. I remember when I got married, man, I got this great job and I wanted to do well at it. Told me, man, you have to get your licenses to handle insurance. Went out, got my licenses. I did so well at this particular company that I amassed 12 awards. I did so well that I won the company's top award. My wife and I got to go down to Tampa Bay to have dinner with the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You know why I was doing it? I wasn't doing it for the glory of God. I talked to Chris about this. I wasn't doing it for the glory of God. I was doing it for my own glory. You see, when I grew up, I didn't grow up with a, a, a silver spoon like a lot of you guys have. I grew up with a plastic spoon, man. I grew up being told by my stepfather that I would never amount to anything in this life. You're stuck here. You will never leave King George County, Virginia. You are stupid. And every day I lived my life to prove that man wrong. When I went to college, I had to work hard 
to not let that man speak into my mind that I could not do something, but I was doing it for my glory. And God, in his providence, cut me off from that job. In the midst of proving my stepfather wrong, I put my wife and my kids on the back burner. I would come home from that job with my laptop and I would work myself to death. Stephanie would be so furious. I would work till 12, one in the morning because I was proving my stepfather wrong and God cut me off and I was furious about it. I worked a job where my salary was slashed in half. I never saw my wife and children. When I got home, they were in the bed. When I worked on Saturdays, they sent me pictures. When they went to football practice, I was not there. When my daughter went to a violin recital, I was not there. I missed it all because I wanted to prove my stepfather wrong and live the American dream. And some of you are doing that right now. But if it had not been for that trial, I wouldn't have learned how to properly value my wife and kids. And you, can't, you could come to me today and say, I'll pay you a million dollars but you work yourself to the bone. I would not do it. Not for my children or my wife. Have you been in this situation? Maybe you've watched a debilitating disease devastate a loved one. Maybe you've been laid off. Maybe you've witnessed an untimely death of a loved one or watched the aftermath of a natural disaster. If you have contemplated the goodness and omnipotence and sovereignty of God, you've asked why. Why is there pain, evil, and suffering? You have said, how can a good God coexist with suffering? Let me ask you a question, believer. I asked the atheist a question early in, earlier in the sermon. I'm going to ask you a question now. If God isn't sovereign, especially over your suffering and pain, what other alternatives can you provide me? What can you offer me if he isn't sovereign? Let me bring this home to you. How can you trust the gospel's hope of glorification, a new heaven, and a new earth without a sovereign God? Because you know what, if, if, he, if God isn't sovereign, this goes on forever. Endless suffering, endless pain, racism, crazy politicians, you know about that. This goes on forever, it never stops, the madness never ends. If God isn't sovereign, but he is. So why? This is our last point. Why is there pain and suffering? Number one, 
There's pain and suffering in the world because the world is broken and crippled by sin and its curse. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Romans 8, 21 through 23 says that creation, the earth, the cosmos, and every creature within it suffers because of this one act of sin. From the womb of original sin, man died spiritually and plunged himself into moral darkness. Jesus says in Mark 7:20 that from man's heart come all types of evil. Jeremiah 17:9 the heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Original sin sent the universe into disorder and led us into the pain and physical death and decay that we experience and see every day. You know, John Piper, he says he does this to help him put to death sin. He has pictures of natural disasters, pictures of atrocious acts that have been committed or acted out upon man. And he says, that? Is that what sin has to offer me? It offers you nothing but chaos. And from the act of one man, this is what has come to pass. Demetrius, if God is good, this is what an unbeliever has said. If God is good, Demetrius, why doesn't he just stop the evil that is going on in the world? Uh, here's my answer. Because if he stopped evil in the world, he may just start with you. And maybe, just maybe, God is good. Maybe he is patient with you. Maybe God is so good and so loving that he himself came down from the throne of heaven to live the life you were supposed to live and die the death that you were supposed to live, die, and he suffered for you. Maybe. Do you think I got an answer or a response from that? No. Number two, God speaks to us through suffering to awaken us. In Luke 13, one through five, Pilate committed an atrocious act. He killed several Galileans and the slaughter was so horrendous that he mingled their blood with his temple sacrifices. And 18 people, Jesus says, died because of a freak accident. The Tower of Siloam fell and killed them and they asked him why. This is God in the flesh now. They said, hey, God, why, why, why'd you allow this thing to happen? Jesus, God in the flesh, did not answer their question directly. He addressed their most pressing need. They needed to have an alarm for their spiritual state and their soul. 
He said, do you think that these Galileans were more evil than you? Unless you repent, you'll perish as well. Jesus is not talking about physical death here. He's talking about, or he's using this smaller event to point to the greater, a greater event to come, the judgment of God. Thomas Vincent, the great Puritan, says this in his book, The Terrible Voice of God in the City. He says, God speaks by his afflictive providences. There is a voice of God in his rod as well as in his word, Micah 6, 9. Hear the rod and he who has appointed it. When God chastens, he teaches. Psalm 44, 12. When God lifts up his hand and strikes, he opens his mouth also and speaks and sometimes opens men's ears too and seals their instruction. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, and shouts to us in our pains. It is a megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Number three, sometimes suffering occurs in the world because of righteous justice. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous, the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath is because he's whimsical or he gets his jollies off of crushing people. No, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Richard Dawkins says this, when he looks at the Canaanites, he says, well, you know, it's, uh, it, God shows his xenophobic relish for ethnic cleansing. No. From the beginning, you can tell this man doesn't read the Bible much. From the beginning, God's plan of redemption did not include ethnic cleansing. Genesis 12, 3 he uses Abraham to bless the families of the earth. We see people who are Gentiles like Melchizedek, Rahab, who are used by God to bring about redemption. Abimelech is treated fairly by God. God says, I know you didn't mean this. Exodus 12, 38, a mixed multitude of Hebrews went out, Hebrews and, and Egyptians went out from Egypt. Moses married a dark-skinned woman. God waited 430 years to send judgment to Canaan. I would say that's patience, because if I was God, there'd probably be a grease spot in the first year. They practice incest, bestiality, homosexuality. They sacrifice their kids and they were willing to throw them into the fiery arms of Moloch. What would you have done to them? God cannot, Habakkuk 1.13, cannot approve sin and he will judge it. Fourth and last one. There is pain and suffering in the world 
because of God's discipline and maturity. Hebrews 12.10, for our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline is always good for us so that we may share in his holiness. Why would God allow pain and suffering into the lives of his beloved? You know, this is a hard one for me because, you know, I, I think I know what's good for me. My kids do too. You guys have heard of my, my little man. He's, he's a great guy, little Aiden. I always give you a story about him. He's a great kid, man. I love that guy. He, we gave him soda one time. And I tell you, boy, he tasted that soda, and it was like, I mean, he was, it was like, I'm not trying to belittle anyone, but it was like he was a drug addict or something. I mean, the kid loves soda. I mean, when he sees soda, he starts to sweat. He's, oh, I want some soda, Daddy. We got home from the football game. I want some soda. Just take me to the store. Give me some soda. Aiden drank some water. I had water at the football game, Daddy. If he could find a way to put an IV on him with soda, he would. He thinks he knows what's best for him. I think I know what's best for me. You see, I think I know what's good, but you see, God's definition of good is totally otherworldly. It's a definition that far exceeds our definition of good. To us, good is no pain, but gain, plenty of money, pleasant neighbors, a tone and fit body, a full head of hair, I'm losing mine. A huge house and a manicured lawn that could be featured in a magazine. But dear ones, God never promised you absolute comfort in this world. You know that, right? He did promise you one thing though. He promised you conformity to the image of Christ. You know that, right? Hebrews 5, 8 says, although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what? Comfort? Manicured lawn? He learned obedience through the things he suffered. Jesus as a human in his atoning work came to know firsthand what it cost to maintain obedience in the midst of suffering. He experienced excessive temptations to the point of death. Jesus experienced rejection. They called him the prince of devils. He slept under the stars. He had no place to lay his head. He watched one of his friends that he wept at the death of his friend. He was rejected of his own nation and he hung upon the cross to suffer cosmic abandonment and the wrath of God for everyone who would ever believe in him. Dan McCartney writes in his book, Why Does It Hurt? Page 60, he says, Christ learned humanhood from his suffering, Hebrews 5.8, and therefore we learn to be like Christ from our suffering. This is what led the Puritan Thomas Manton to say this. If you don't have Manton's commentary on Romans, you need to get it. Led Thomas Manton to say this. God had one son without 
sin, but none without suffering. This God, he's not like Tolkien, who writes The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien is never found in that book. This God writes himself into the story of humanity. And he suffers for us. And listen to this. This is the good part. He suffers with us. He does not know about suffering. See, when I was laid up, I remember telling God, I said, hey, man, you know, I was downstairs in my office crying out, God, what do you, you know, what do you know about bills? You know, I have a mortgage and so on and so forth. And you know, God paid his bills. Peter, go fetch us. Fetch a fish out there. Go pay our taxes. God knows about bills. When I lost a son, God, what do you know? God, you don't know anything about losing a son. You're sitting on a throne, man. You don't have any pains. God lost a son. And I'm saying this not to be a heretic. In his humanity, he lost Christ. He lost him in a greater way for you. Because of your sin, he lost him. And he knows what it feels like. He knows what it is to lose a son. Have you ever asked, this question, what was God doing for eternity? Was he some isolated being seated upon some throne all by himself? You know what God was doing for an eternity? God was being a father, loving his son. John 1.18 says that the son rested in the bosom of his father. It says in Psalm 16 and 11 that in God's presence, in the bosom of the father, there is fullness of joy. That's what Jesus left to suffer for you and to suffer with you. Oh, Demetrius, he's in heaven. What did he tell Paul? Paul, why do you persecute my church? No. Paul, do you know who you're persecuting? Me. Hebrews 4. Jesus tells you, you know, I'm touched with the feeling of your infirmities. This is the Demetrius White translation, so don't, don't beat me up for this. I'm touched with the feeling of your infirmities. So I know about it, and if you're going through something, come 
I feel it and I have grace to offer to you in the time of need. You don't get that with any other God. You don't get that with Allah. He's too high and mighty. But this is a humble God. And he has died for you and he suffers with you. Lord, I come to you in the name of Jesus, thanking you for your word. We pray that uh, you apply it to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.